Welcome to the Theory Lab Podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. I'm not a scientist. I'm here with Susanna Greer, the good Dr. Susanna Greer. Say hi, Susanna. Hello, everybody. We spoke um, yesterday with Dr. Joe Handelsman, and she was the best. So she was an ACS postdoc back in 1984, 1985. Um, she'd gotten her PhD in molecular biology at UW-Madison, professor in plant biology, chair of bacteriology, co-founder of the Women in Science and Engineering Leadership Institute, and then founder of the Wisconsin Program for Scientific Teaching. She was a Howard Hughes Medical Institute, Institute professor at Yale, where she founded the Yale Center for Scientific Teaching. And then before returning to UW-Madison, she was the associate director for science in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. Uh, under President Obama. Uh, she's left the government. She's now running a research lab focused on understanding diversity in microbial communities and their role in infectious disease. Susanna, you chatted with her for about 30 minutes. What did you think? Oh, my gosh, Joe. She was fantastic. Uh, you know, I was thinking about it after the podcast, and there was this really cool theme that ran through our conversation where over and over again throughout her career, she recognized deficiencies. And rather than just kind of complain about it or tweet about it, yeah. she did something about it. Um, so, I, you know, she talked to us first about her recognition of the struggle that we all have, even with the best of intentions, to be good mentors. And she's really made some inroads into not only recognizing uh, how we might be better mentors, but also into developing some training tools. So that was that was cool. And then, I, again, she recognized that... There are biases that we all have uh, just as human beings, Ben, and as she said, many studies done on bias, but never on science and scientists and our biases. So again, rather than just saying, shucks, that stinks, she did something about it. And that, oh my gosh, what a cool part of that conversation. And then just through her actions, you know, that led her to what I think would be a dream job for any of us. The recognition that she's all about action, less about talk, led her to this position um, in the White House, which was just amazing to hear about. So I don't know. What did you think? Um, did, did those threads resonate with you? Yeah, totally. I wish we'd had more time with her. I mean, I would. I wanted to ask her if she's really the world's foremost expert on caterpillar guts, but we didn't really get to get into her research too much, but she's all into like, you know, uh, microbial communities, the role of a gut community as a source of opportunistic pathogens. And so her host, her, her the model community she uses is caterpillars. And um, right. maybe next time, next time, right? Maybe next time. But speaking of guts, I, I think that the, the one of the, the last... I'll, I'll ask Theory Lab to hang on till the end of the interview because the way she wraps it up around her ACS postdoc, which began studying plants um, and microorganisms and plants and how she's come full circle to an appreciation, as, as we all have, of the role that microorganisms play in the gut and certainly in, in colorectal cancer and her appreciation for the support and recognition the ACS has of a broad-based platform for basic research was just lovely. So, yeah, yeah, Theory Lab, I think you'll enjoy it. She, She's she's fantastic. Thanks, Susanna. Okay, um, on to the interview. 
All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Joe. I'm excited to talk to you about mentoring. Um, I've read a lot about your career, and you've had such an interesting career path. And it seems like the importance of mentoring and teaching is a theme that occurs and reoccurs throughout your career. So I'm probably leaving some things off, but I know that you had a book um, titled Entering Mentoring, a Seminar to Train a New Generation of Scientists. And from what I can tell, and in my own experience, um, it's pretty widely used by universities throughout the United States. Would you mind sharing with us um, your motivation behind writing this book? Well, entering mentoring was something that I sort of fell into, um, realizing that uh, no one really knows how to mentor. Uh, I, I had a group of undergraduates that I met with during a summer program, and they were all doing research with graduate students or faculty, and they talked a lot about what their mentors were doing or not doing that were making their lives um, better or not. And I realized that a parallel meeting uh, weekly with the mentors might be really useful. So I started a group of graduate students uh, who were mentoring these undergraduates. And it was really fascinating to uh, hear first the undergrad version and then the grad student version. And I didn't share with the grad students what their undergrads were saying specifically, but I did share the general concepts like some of your undergrads really want more independence. How could we work on that? And many of the, the graduate students were kind of shocked with the feedback because they simply weren't asking the right questions or any questions of their undergrads. So they just didn't know what the experience of the undergraduates was. So I began to realize that mentoring is, of course, a lot about communication, and that doesn't necessarily come naturally. Um, people make a lot of assumptions about the other person's uh, experience. And so I started doing it a little bit more systematically, and uh, the, the collaborators, Chris Fund and um, others that I was working with, uh, we started interviewing faculty that we thought were great mentors, and all of them said, oh, I don't know anything about mentoring. I just make a lot of mistakes. So we thought, you know, maybe we could do a little better than this, and that's how we developed the course, and um, it really evolved from what the mentors and mentees told us. That's really interesting. So you were, in a way, you were moderating, I guess, between those two groups and then finding some deficiencies and then a way to to fill that void, I guess, with a book and a course that developed. Have, does that kind of sum it up? I mean, have you seen some impact um, from, from what you've done? Well, we started with the single book, which was intended for graduate students who were mentoring undergrads, because that was what we had actually done. And I, I guess I realized that it was having an impact when uh, people started asking for versions of the book that catered to different groups. And so they're all pretty much along the same format, but now there's a whole series of books. And they're all essentially a course. It's the script for a course, uh, usually eight hours, which can be either eight sessions or uh, four two-hour sessions. There are lots of different ways to run it. But now, instead of just being focused on graduate students in the life sciences, um, it is there are other versions for faculty. There are versions for clinical um, researchers. 
Um, I think there's a math and a physics version now, so it's really been replicated using relevant language and examples from those different fields. Nice. So this sounds like something that if you're a new faculty member, you could snatch up, or if you're a postdoc and maybe you're mentoring a grad student or an undergrad, it sounds like a really good resource. Um, is there an easy way for people to find this information? Yeah, it's online. If you just Google uh, entering mentoring, uh, you'll find it. And you can download the PDF or you can buy the book, whatever's more convenient. Um, it's free if you just download it. Um, one of the things that, that I, I think is worth mentioning is that you don't have to know how to mentor to run this seminar um, because mm -hmm. it's really a facilitation role and it's the questions that you ask and the case studies that are used to generate discussion are all there in the book. So I always tell junior faculty, if you can't get other people to run the seminar, just run it yourself. I guarantee you'll have people who want to take it and you'll learn so much from, um, from, from teaching it. Uh, and you, of course, don't have to really teach it. Uh, I've taught it dozens of times now, and I think I still learn almost as much the uh, 20th time as I did the first time. It's always a revelation. I always see have new insight or see something new about mentoring that I didn't know before. Oh, that's really wonderful. I, I think that many of us, like you said, we learn from our experiences as a mentee and maybe the things that we liked and didn't like in the way that we were mentored. And then we try to refine the way that we mentor beyond that. But, but very, very few of us have the opportunity to have any real training in mentoring. So this is a great resource. So thank you. Um, so I want to shift gears a little bit um, because you, you're a name that comes up really frequently when people talk about implicit biases um, that shape scientists' attitudes and behaviors. And uh, one of the things that we went back to look for, Joe found that your 2012 publication, Science Faculty Subtle Gender Biases Favor Male Students, it's in the top 10 of um, all altimetric scores um, that any uh, ACS grantee has ever had. So it's pretty impressive. So could you just tell us a little bit about that publication and why you think it garnered so much attention? Well, the 2012 paper reports a study in which we simply sent a resume uh, around uh, to faculty in the uh, biological, chemical, and physical sciences um, at six top universities across the country. And we asked them a series of questions about the student's resume. Uh, they all got the same resume, and the only difference was that half of them were randomly assigned the name John, and some and half were um, had randomly assigned the name Jennifer. The student in, in the resume was uh, the recipient of different names. And we sent it to male and female faculty, junior and senior faculty, and so we had a really good distribution uh, of research faculty at research universities, and we found uh, that there was a substantial difference in their evaluation of John Jennifer's talents, their competence, uh, whether they would hire Jennifer or John, and uh, how much they would pay Jennifer or John. There was a 15% um, pay difference. If they were to offer them a job, um, they would pay Jennifer substantially less. 
they were also less likely to offer Jennifer uh, mentoring, which I found particularly interesting and, and frankly, somewhat uh, disturbing. And uh, the implications of it, of that, uh, were really quite devastating because if you think of all of the mentoring, advising, just casual discussion, answering of questions that faculty do, if every one of those interactions with their undergraduate students or perhaps students at other levels is shaped by this subtle bias, um, it's, it's really uh, pretty impactful over the course of a career. You know, if you imagine the hundreds of interactions that a, a given faculty member will have or that a student will have with all their faculty, um, there are a lot of interactions that if you imagine the males are getting just a little more time or they're being encouraged to try for slightly more ambitious uh, internships or research experiences or jobs or something like that, um, it, it really, uh, you, can, you can see why men and women end up in very different places. So there was nothing intrinsically new conceptually about the, the study because people have been doing, in, in the field of cognitive and social psychology, people have been doing these studies for 50 or 60 years where they put a different name on a resume and then ask the question, would you hire the person? And it always comes out the same, that the male is more likely to be hired than the female. And so this is an old story in the field of psychology. But when I would talk about studies like this, and there are hundreds of them, if not thousands, out there, um, scientists would always say, but we're trained to be objective, so we don't do that. And of course, that shows a certain lack of understanding of what implicit or unconscious bias is. Science trains us in our cognitive minds to be objective, but that doesn't influence our, our biases. Frankly, if it did, then we wouldn't have to run blind experiments. I mean, we, we right. admit that we have bias in our experimentation, but somehow we deny it in our interactions with people. And so the only thing that was new about this study was that it was with scientists, and I felt that it, it needed to be done because I couldn't answer the question that scientists kept bringing up, well, why would this apply to us? We're objective. And I would say, but you know, you're consciously objective, not that doesn't affect your unconscious, and they would scoff at it very often. And so the idea was to provide the data that, yes, scientists do this too. And so the result was really quite powerful because it was very highly statistically significant. Uh, there was evidence that it was extremely widespread across the faculty that we um, included in the survey. There was no difference in the evaluations of Jennifer and John between men and women. Women showed exactly the same biases that men did. Uh, and the junior and senior faculty showed the same biases. So all of the predictions that people might make that uh, women would be less biased than men or junior faculty would be less biased than senior faculty, none of those were true. Um, none of them were borne out by the research. Wow, I mean, it, it's fascinating. It is also disheartening. <laughs> but it's been, I guess, seven years, right, since that paper came mm -hmm. out. So lots have happened in the scientific community. I know that, so I'd be really interested to hear what actions you took. I mean, what, how did this motivate you to, um, to, to push for change? Well, I, 
had frankly been very deeply influenced by the social psychology studies done with non-scientists. So I presumed that this was uh, a set of biases that were held by all people and um, and therefore scientists were subject to them. So I had started working with colleagues at Wisconsin and then uh, at Yale on interventions that might influence the impact of bias. And right. there's pretty good evidence that it's hard to change these unconscious biases, but it is possible to mitigate the effect of them on the decisions we make about people. And so at Wisconsin, we had started uh, training programs to make uh, search committee chairs or department chairs more aware of unconscious bias so that they could use that information uh, in their behaviors and they could they could hold themselves accountable and hold others accountable to make sure that they were really treating people equitably and and uh, fairly uh, after the study of course every news outlet that covered it wanted to know well what do we do about this and I could cite the the work the training work but I wondered if because cognitive bias uh, and, and implicit bias is not uh, a conscious process, if maybe we could use a less conscious process to um, address it. And the, the, the work that appealed to me was a whole series of studies in the literature using um, radio and other kinds of uh, interventions using the arts to change people's belief systems. And so we developed a set of videos and then studied their impact. And each video demonstrates um, one example of bias that's found in the scientific literature and, um, and shows a scenario of scientists in labs or um, in search committee meetings that are very, very typical and familiar to scientists. And then we use them to generate discussion about bias. And what we found in uh, the study was that although we're sure that unconscious bias itself didn't change, people's um, ability to recognize bias increased, um, their attitudes about bias changed, and their attitudes about science and becoming scientists changed. So we think there are ways to address these implicit biases, even if they're kind of stuck in our deep brains uh, and can't be rooted out. We can certainly deal with their impacts. Right. I think, um, yeah, your 2018 paper where you talk about um, reducing the STEM gender bias with those video interventions is really interesting. Um, I'm wondering if you were a, like, give me some advice to a postdoc, right, who's trying to navigate their way through uh, the beginnings of a scientific career or a junior faculty member. Um, what advice would you give them um, of you know, are, are these videos things that you could bring in as a resource? Or are there other things that they might do to try to heighten awareness um, amongst both male and female colleagues? Well, I think the first thing is to heighten awareness in ourselves. And it really does help not to blame every failure or rejection or whatever on bias, but to remember that bias could be a factor. And what I worry about is that a lot of women take rejections and failures of, you know, papers not being accepted or grants not being funded 
or jobs not being offered uh, entirely personally. And Mm -hmm. I think it helps to remember that the odds are just lower uh, for women to get an offer or to have a paper accepted. There's bias in everything that we do. And so I think that's the first thing is, is just not being as personally affected and not using these outside judgments of our work um, as ultimate judgments of ourselves. And that's very, very difficult for most Mm -hmm. of us, but I think it's important to remember. And then I think using things like the videos or there is a bias section in the Entering Mentoring book, um, so that course discusses the impacts Mm -hmm. and, and evidence for bias. I think introducing those kinds of discussions into uh, any academic environment, whether it's uh, peers, you know, other postdocs and junior faculty, or suggesting to a department chair that maybe this would be an interesting topic for a department-wide seminar. I think there are there are places where it can be introduced in a in a pretty non-threatening way. Um, and one of the beauties of the research is that all of the research shows that men and women, um, blacks and whites, Hispanics and, and whites, all apply these biases pretty similarly. And so it's not an accusation against white men that you're, you know, mm-hmm. they're not doing these bad things. It's not a plot to keep women and minorities out of uh, academic science. This is just something all people do. And I think when you present it that way um, and say that it's a way, becoming aware of it is a way to um, be more fair and get better people uh, hired and better grants and, and papers uh, funded and accepted, it becomes a, a lot um, less threatening to people. So, I, And I think that's what most postdocs and junior faculty would say. Well, you know, if I bring this up, is this going to alienate my mm-hmm. uh, colleagues or uh, advisor or whomever? And I, I think there are very gentle ways to raise it. Yeah, that's a, a really nice way to think about it, um, and a way that that does help us all to to realize that we're we're all to blame in this together, um, so we can all be part of the solution. So I, I do. Before we let you go, I want to switch gears one more time um, because I am a huge fan of yours, and I think there are an awful lot of people out there who would really <laughs> like to have a little bit of insight um, into another part of your career. Um, so you. Everyone may not know, but you served, I think, a three-year term under Obama as Associate Director of, for Science at the White House in the Office of Science yes. and Technology Policy, which just sounds an, like an amazing job. So um, I would love to know, um, maybe you could just share with, our, with us what that transition was like, like maybe just kind of the reality of how did, how did that job happen? And then I think we'd all really like to know, you know, maybe some highs and lows. What was the best part of working there for the White House and, you know, were there challenges maybe that you didn't anticipate? So I guess how that happened and then maybe a high and a low would be really interesting to hear. Well, it happened very unexpectedly. I got a call out of the blue from uh, President Obama's science advisor, John Holdren, who was the director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy, and he said, the president and I would like you to come to the White House and work on science policy. And 
I thought it was just an absurd notion because I thought I knew nothing about policy and I was extremely happy running a lab and um, being an academic scientist and I couldn't imagine leaving my lab for a few years. And so I turned it down and a combination of my husband being quite appalled that I would turn down President Obama (laughs) and John Holdren's insistence um, and uh, a couple of my nephews who were adamant that I take this position and just couldn't conceive of why someone would ever not want to do such a, a wonderful job made me think again, and eventually I accepted the position and went through the Senate confirmation process and the FBI checks and all the misery that one has to go through to um, to be a political appointee in the White House. And one of the things that Holdren said that convinced me that maybe I could do it was I went down to the White House and visited, and I said, John, why do you want me for this job? And He said, I don't know anything about policy. And he said, oh, don't worry about policy. We can teach you all that. What we want is ideas. Hmm. And I thought, well, okay. I mean, that's kind of what scientists spend their lives doing is generating ideas. And I knew I had an interest in issues that weren't uh, just the science itself, just the experimentation or study of science. Uh, I was interested in bias, of course, and uh, equity in science. I was interested in um, science and agriculture and the importance of microbiology um, and the importance of STEM education. So uh, there were issues that certainly um, connected with much larger issues than, than just laboratory science, which is what I had always done. So I finally uh, got down there and started the job, and it was it was really hard to go from being an academic to being a government employee to being a member of uh, the White House to being part of uh, an, a high-level team that had a, a lot of visibility and uh, a responsibility to represent the White House and the president at all times. And so one of the shocks for me was that I... I didn't quite understand the impact of losing my own voice, of mm. that I was not allowed to have my own opinions in public, that I was always representing the White House. And that's something scientists are not not used to doing. And I think every scientist I knew who was in a similar role had struggled with that. The high points were definitely working with President Obama, who absolutely loves science, respects science, and is uh, one of the most evidence-based people uh, I've ever met. Everything that he does, he wants to make sure is driven by data. And for scientists, that's, that's pretty rewarding. And he loved science so much that we always felt like when we met with him, we were the high point of his day. And maybe he made everybody feel that way, but um, he really did seem to have a special uh, respect for and appreciation for and just kind of nerdy enjoyment of science. And so it was always exciting to talk science with him um, and to develop policy for him and, and with him. That was probably one of the greatest privileges of my life was working for him. The hard parts were when things didn't go so well, 
for either political reasons or um, we just couldn't get traction on, on an initiative or direction. And that was incredibly frustrating. And I still am working on a couple of things that I couldn't get done at the White House because of um, political um, intrigue um, in among the agencies, uh, the, the, the scientific agencies. And I think I'm probably better equipped to work on those things from an academic position. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for representing the scientific community so well. It sounds like a just a, a once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, all right, well, okay, I said it would be my last question, but I have one more because you've done so much, but we haven't even touched on your research, um, which, you know, we all hold near and dear to our hearts. So years ago, you were an ACS postdoc, um, and I know that your career has gone through multiple permutations, and, and now you are, I've read several of your papers this morning, so um, a lot of your work is focused on microbial communities and like a, the links to infectious disease. So I guess a two-part question. One would be, do you see ways that your ACS postdoctoral experience influenced your career? And the second piece would be, do you have on any of these issues um, a sole piece of advice that if you could go back and give it to yourself when you were an ACS postdoc, um, anything you would have said um, that might have changed things or or maybe paved the way or made things a little easier? Well, I I think the ACS um, postdoctoral fellowship made me very aware of the unity of biology very early on because I was working on uh, cancer in plants, um, so crown gall tumor formation in plants, and ACS has always had this extraordinarily broad definition of, of basic research and basic research that will have an impact on uh, understanding cancer, and I always appreciated that that here I was, a plant scientist studying a plant-microbe interaction, um, and and ACS saw that as a valid model for understanding cancer. Interestingly, I don't know that any of the insights that were gathered studying crown gall tumors have had a direct impact on understanding cancer, but the world is so um, unified that in other ways, bacteria have profound influences on cancer. And so in the last few years, it's become clear that uh, gut bacteria play a role in many, many kinds of chronic disease and uh, cancer, colon cancer in particular as well. And so I've become uh, interested in the the gut microbial community, even though most of my work has been in uh, model communities or plant-associated communities. I do have some studies going on now on the human microbiome uh, and and the gut community. And I I think that um, being involved in cancer research early on uh, when I was a plant scientist, certainly kept in my mind throughout my career how biology is biology and what we learn in one aspect is probably going to have some relevance to other aspects of biology. Well, you're absolutely right, and and I think we'll end with that because um, we are grateful for all that you've done uh, for science and for scientists, and um, personally, we're really excited to to have you back thinking about uh, the microbiome and um, 
and the influences in infectious disease and certainly the influences in cancer. So um, thanks for sharing some time with us and we'll continue to, to watch out and see what our former ACS postdoc continues to produce. So thanks, Joe. Thank you so much. I'll always be grateful for my ACS fellowship and uh, I wish the, the best to all the, the current fellows and future fellows in, in their endeavors as well.